The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Right now in Fast Late Day, selling the day after the Fed decision. Tech getting hit the hardest along with stocks pegged to the consumer. So if the spending party is over, where do investors turn for profits now? Plus, a face-off on Capitol Hill. Jamie Dimon scoring off with Michigan Representative Rashida Tlaib. Dimon saying no way his bank will stop lending right now to big oil and why he believes doing so would be a, quote, road to hell. Then a big upgrade for Eli Lilly, the stock rocketing higher. One analyst says their obesity drug is a potential blockbuster. One of our traders says it could be the holy grail for weight loss. And later, the CEO of Cano Health will join us. His stock shooting up late in the day and reports Humana and potentially CVS are eyeing the company. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Market Site on the desk tonight. Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, Brian Kelly, and soon to join us, Bono and Eisen. In the meantime, we begin with another down day on Wall Street, nearly a quarter of the S&P 500 hitting fresh 52-week lows at one point today. The Dow selling into the close to end near session lows. And tech once again falling harder than the other major averages. All of this as rates keep marching higher. The two-year and the 10-year both surging again today. The yields, that is. One of our traders, though, believes today's move didn't start on Wall Street or Washington, but rather half a world away, an hours ahead of the opening bell. He says the trigger began in Japan because of a currency intervention by their government, something they have not done since 1998. Who would say this? Of course, the one and only BK. So, BK, <laughs> what's the thesis here? Yeah, yeah. So getting awoken at 4 a.m. to a currency intervention. But here's what happened is the Bank of Japan came out and they decided to sell U.S. dollars and buy yen. And this was about four, four or five o'clock Eastern time uh, in the U.S., four or five a.m. And so mechanically to do that, effectively what they need to do is sell treasury bonds. And as they sell treasury bonds, yields go higher. And what we've seen is higher yields are really bad for stocks, particularly the NASDAQ. And we saw all day the NASDAQ basically leading on the way down. Even more particularly, when 10-year yields hit about 360, about 9.15 this morning, uh, you saw Treasury yields sell off, and immediately the NASDAQ futures sold off right before the open. So from my seat where I'm sitting, this all started because of the currency intervention. I suspect they'll likely be doing more, and at the very least, that's going to cause rates to go higher. And now I've got three major parties selling bonds, which is the Fed, the Bank of Japan, and the People's Bank of China, and there's very few buyers. So for equity investors, you don't usually think about currencies or what's going on in Japan, but here's one time that you need to be aware that rates could be going higher despite what the Fed does. Okay, so here's the question. We're at 3.7 now, became before I open it up to the group here. Um, we could see the yield curve actually steepen at this point. And so what happens, do you think, when yield curves steepen in a bad market, in a bad economy uh, like we have now? 
Yeah, it's not great. Let's put it that way. And it's probably bad for the banks. And we saw the banks really trade off today. But think about it, right? Now the yield curve, and I don't know if it, let's say, let's say uh, 10 years go to four and a half, two years are at four and a half. You got a flat yield curve. The banks aren't going to earn that spread, or at least investors aren't going to think they're able to earn that spread. And that's not really a great environment. And the economy is weakening because now they have nothing to earn and they're going to start dealing with delinquencies and defaults. So to me, ground zero for this is the banks, and if you look at a long-term chart of XLF or JP Morgan, it is right on long-term support of a trend line, and so it's something to watch for sure. All right, well, I would take the other side of that 210, um, you know, that this is a pro- banks are a proxy for the 210 spread, which they are not. They are much, much shorter. So this kind of yield curve, this spike in the near, you know, this very sharp slope in the front end of the yield curve is actually quite good for them. I think you're going to see net interest income, net interest margins much higher. Although BK did touch on if people think they're a 210 spread proxy, bank, right. the banks Which is are, what it has been. Yeah. Yes. So we'll, we'll have to see what they earn. Right. Right. Then we'll know. Are they really or are they not? I think they are not. Um, can, but I do have one other question, though, relating back to the yen. Um, do you see this as a George Soros, you know, 1992 uh, British pound kind of moment? What, what's the magnitude of this, uh, of the floor they're trying to put under the yen? Well, so this, this is absolutely a moment that things can go nonlinear in currency and bond markets. There's no question about that. The Bank of Japan did not put a specific price. Everybody thought it was 145 U.S. dollar yen. What they said, it was all about the volatility. So from my view, that leaves it wide open for it to go higher. And I think, you know, at the very least, this is the fuel and the catalyst for one of those moments like you saw that Soros made off of the British pound. It, and you need to watch all the other Asian currencies now, the RMB, the Taiwan dollar, all of these now are right on the edge of having one of these big nonlinear parabolic moves. A lot of people out there are thinking, I don't care about the yen. I don't know about currencies. <laughs> But exactly. you do care about stocks out there and you do care about what your Apple's doing, what your Meta's doing, and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And, and the 10-year yield is where it's at when it comes to the direction of this trade. Yeah. And I mean, listen, you can map the dis- destruction in high growth, high valuation tech going back to late last year when rates started coming off the mat a little bit, right? And so um, the cost of capital, I mean, there's a whole host of things, right, that have just changed um, in how we value stocks. So that's been going on for more than a year here. A lot of stocks, dozens, if not hundreds, have actually been cut in half. They, for all intents and purposes, crashed. So we talked about it a couple times this week already. I think we've talked about it dozens of times over the last few months or so. I mean, we're really waiting on a handful of stocks to correct. Even in a day like today, where a lot of NASDAQ stocks, Tim really nailed the semi-trade and has over the last few weeks, they were not particularly good today, okay? And to me, that's a leading indicator when I think about tech. But what outperformed? Apple outperformed today. You know, we're really waiting on a handful of names as it relates to tech. The one thing I will say also about J.P. Morgan, when you think about the banks, BK is 100% correct. If you draw a line from the 2011 lows in J.P. Morgan, that is the tempest in the teapot, you remember the London whale, all that sort of stuff, and you do it on a log basis, we are almost very near a very key long-term support level. And it also coincides that uptrend with the gap from late 2020 when we had the vaccine news and it was kind of off to the races. So to me, I think 
JP Morgan's underperformance all year has been saying something about where we are. And if you think about it, that's great. That, that, the net interest margins that you just highlighted, think about all the stuff in the capital markets that are just not doing particularly well here. I think this stock is going to fill in that gap back towards 104, and that means it's broken a long-term uptrend. And I do think that you could extrapolate that to whatever businesses you want as it relates to the consumer, as it relates to lending, as it relates to housing, as it relates to capital markets. I just don't think that's going to be a great sign for the broader stock market. Okay. Um, You know, I'm long. I I think that it will matter. But I think that um, I I think as long as most people, not most, the overwhelming majority of people still have jobs, right, that the consumer isn't gone. So what is the overwhelming majority of people? Because we are going to see unemployment. We absolutely are. We are going to. Absolutely. I think we actually might see a white collar um, unemployment recession as opposed to a blue-collar unemployment recession, right? I think that the amount of jobs that are still, the blue-collar jobs that need to be filled is so much higher than the overhiring that was done in the white-collar jobs. So that's that that, Is that worse for the economy? It depends on what you're looking for. Is it worse for a Walmart? Or I would say no. Is it worse for a boat? Uh Uh, You know, for those, right? Yes, it is worse. So I think we're going to be looking at a different kind of recession. It's a disaster for the economy. If, if, if we have a white-collar unemployment sort of thing, I mean, when you think about where all the wage gains have come, and this is one of the stickiest parts of inflation, when you think about that, okay, it's been on the lower end, right? And a lot of these companies who are, like, you know, filling jobs or having a hard time filling jobs and they've been pushing the wages up, I mean, that's been great for a low-end worker. low-end worker has not gotten a wage increase in a very long time in America. But prior no, to the pandemic... that's pan- not true. Well, that's it, it is kind of true. The data suggests that, that, that it is true. I mean, we haven't seen wage gains in the low end in a very long time. And so, to me, if you take out purchasing power from the higher end here, okay, um, to me, that's just a really bad scenario, especially at a time when you see, you know, housing rolling over where we know um, where are most homes owned. They're owned in like the upper strata, that sort of thing. So I just think that 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 would be a very bad thing. I mean, if if we are going to see the 10-year yield, BK, go higher because QT is it's just in its baby stages right now. We don't really know what the full impact is going to be. Right. We're already seeing mortgage rates, you know, up for seven straight weeks or, or some crazy stat like that. Um, this sort of talk of a white collar recession, I mean, it's sort of it's very provocative. I, I think it's very troubling, too. I mean, if you pair that with the, the damage no, I- that we will see in housing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with the white collar recession. And in fact, it's explicitly what the Fed has said they wanted. I mean, they when the stock market rallied, Jay Powell changed his speech to make sure the stock market went down. Recently, Neil Kashkari was happy to see the stock market go down. I mean, this is explicitly what they're saying. They're saying they want housing prices to go down. Generally, those are the type of things that are white-collar wealth effects. So, yeah, 100%. I think, if anything, you want to buy Main Street, sell Wall Street. Our next guest warns the Fed is putting the U.S. in a danger zone. Peter Bookvar is the chief investment officer at Bleakley Advisory Group, CNBC contributor. Peter, I know you've been listening in on our conversation. Um, So what does that danger zone look like? from your vantage point? So I'm okay with the, the destination of, of the Fed wanting to take the Fed funds rate to call it four-ish. Um, the problem I have is the, 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 the rapid and ferocious velocity at which they are tightening monetary policy. And while they want to talk about the, the, the lead and lag variables and you know, it takes time for this to flow through, 
I think the, the speed at which they're hiking uh, is the biggest risk. And I think that we're already beginning to, to, to feel the beginning of it. And from the hikes from here, uh, I, I think that things start to really uh, become precarious and, and more accidents uh, to uh, or, or had the potential of taking place. So basically, I mean, just sort of piecing together, we, you've been on the show many times, on the network many times. The Fed is covering up its mistake with another policy mistake. Two wrongs don't make a right at this point, and, and it's going to be even worse in terms of the outcome. Yes, and, but this is not going to be the first time. Uh, I mean, just look at the, the, the Greenspan response to the tech bubble. Cutting rates to 1% at the time was unprecedented. And then he left it there and then raised it all the way up to, to five and a quarter. That was another, uh, now that was in a measured pace, but that was a very uh, sharp rise in interest rates on top of a very over-levered housing market. And the economy as a whole, uh, and I said this before on the show, that it has been very dependent on low interest rates. And, and economic behavior has been very dependent on low interest rates. And, and valuations of, of pretty much everything, whether it's securities or it's paintings or cars, have been predicated on very low interest rates. So just, the, the, again, the rapidity of this move, to me, is the biggest risk. Peter, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. I always love to read your commentary. Do you think, though, that inflation, if, let's say we see another similar inflation number to what we just recently saw, what would you advise the Fed to do if, if we're still pretty hot? I, I still think the Fed needs to slow down the rate. They can still continue on with their destination, but the rate of the, of the increases, I think, needs to slow. And a hot inflation number, if it's driven by rents, well, that's looking at the rearview mirror because rental increases are slowing on a year-over-year -year basis. So the Fed is going this way with the way that they're viewing the biggest component of the CPI, while in reality it's moderating. So I don't think that they should change their, their, their approach here. In, you know, in, ter hey, Peter, in terms of the destination, so, so but the pace, for okay. sure, they need to slow. Hey, Peter, BK, so I have a question outside of the inflation rates. Let's, let's say you're right, and I happen to agree with you that the, the pace that they're raising is probably too much, and it's creating these events like we talked about at the top of the show. But let's say you're right, and it's over-tightening. Where is the unemployment rate? I've had discussions with folks that have said, you know, it might be 4.5%, but if you look back in history with inflation at these rates, what Volcker had to do, you had 11% unemployment. So where do you see the inflation rate in this, and then how does that impact the economy? I, I think the unemployment rate goes north of 5. Uh, you know, I was listening to what you guys were talking about before, and, and I think the biggest risk to markets is more of an earnings recession rather than an economic recession. And I say that because even if the unemployment rate's still going to rise, I think these labor cost pressures, while maybe they don't accelerate from here, are, are very much embedded right now at this, this 4 to 6% range. So I think that there's more downside risk to the earnings story than there is to actual GDP. Mm, that's interesting. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Always great to get your take. Peter Bookvar of Bleakly appropriately named for his outlook. Um, okay, so yeah. an earnings recession, that's yeah. interesting. So all these sticky parts of inflation will stick, yeah. and then there'll be less demand on top of that for the product. 
Yeah, and, and, and again, we talked about this last night. I think we're going to start seeing that in some of these enterprise um, companies' you know, results. And I will say this. I think Apple and Microsoft might do Jay Powell a, a, a huge favor by actually guiding down, okay, having investors kind of reset their expectations for, again, those two stocks are $4 trillion in market cap, and they are really holding up the value of the S&P 500. And, and I mean that because rather than piecing it out and seeing how things go, maybe set some very cautious expectations let investors reset. If they really are trying to hit the stock market, they actually now have to focus on a handful of stocks, not just the, the, the monolith that is the stock market. Because to me, we already went through this. These top 10 stocks have a much higher multiple than the other 490 in the S&P 500. And that's the only way you're going to get investors' attention about the stock market as a whole. How do you think, BK, about the multiple of the biggest cap tech stocks out there right now relative to the overall market? I mean, overvalued, I guess, is the simplest thing. But if you th- again, you look back, you know, where was the P.E. ratio at the lows in the 80s, right? It was seven. Now, I'm not necessarily saying we go back there, uh, but even if we're lower from here, let's say we go to a P.E. of 12, you're talking about much lower prices, particularly if you're going to get rates above four and a half percent, five or six percent. You know, that, that's the biggest concern here is that rates might be doing their own thing and having knock-on effects to with the economy, which ultimately, and I agree with Dan, you know, everybody's an index investor now, so you actually have to get the index lower to make people pay attention. All right, we got an earnings alert here on Costco now. Shares extending the losses from today's losses despite beating revenue estimates for the quarter. Courtney Reagan is here to take us inside the numbers court. Hi, Mel. Yeah, so Costco putting up another pretty steady quarter, though, as you note, shares are down more than typical in response to these results. Comparable sales, which are still given monthly, remember, grew nearly 14% for this 16-week quarter, up nearly 16% in just the United States, if you exclude that, if you pulled out that region. E-commerce comps up more than 7%. Now, gas price inflation is responsible for about positive 3% of that total comp growth. Membership revenue grew 7.5% over last year, slightly bettering expectations. And renewal rates hit all-time highs, more than 90% for worldwide renewal rates, higher in the U.S. and Canada at 92.6%. And on the call just now, Chief Financial Officer Richard Galante said there are no specific plans for a membership fee increase at this time. Sam's Club did just announce an increase. Gross margin, excluding membership fees, that was 10.2%. Operating margin three and a half percent, both relatively in line with consensus. Inventories up about 26 percent there. Of course, some of that is likely inflation too. Going into the report, Stiefel, Jeffries, Bank of America, among the firms with buyer equivalent ratings, even with this high valuation compared to some of its peers, analysts point to the sustainability of the sales, the ability to pass through inflation when necessary to its very loyal membership base, which, as the CFO just told us, all time high loyalty. Melissa, back over to you. Courtney, thanks. Courtney Reagan. Karen, how do you think of Costco in an in a inflationary environment? Is it immune? Is it more immune than others? Yeah, I think it's better able than others, right? The scale, for one thing. Um, and I mean, they just execution is always flawless. I think that here, I, you know, obviously that was a that was a decent quarter, right? Nothing to un, not like about it. It's just the multiple is just too high. Right. It's, you know, in the low 30s and um, it does deserve a premium multiple for sure. They've earned it year in and year out. But at some point, I guess the market just says, I don't care if you're a Lulu or or a Costco, 
we can't pay a multiple like that. Yeah, the forward is 34. Dan. 34. Okay. Yeah, so we're talking about really consistent, you know, like double-digit earnings growth year over year. They have that embedded membership component of it, which is like great for margins, right? And so, you know, on the revenue side, you know, we're seeing like high single-digit revenue growth. So to your point, I mean, what are we paying 30 times for? Is it a consumer staple? We had this conversation yeah. last night. I, I don't know. I mean, they are subject to a lot of the inflationary issues as it relates to wages and supply chains and all this sort of stuff. So so to me, if we are about to go into a recession and a really tough time for consumers we've been talking about, I have to assume that their results get worse from an earnings and a margin standpoint. You know what I mean? They might get a larger increase of the retail pie because, as Walmart told us a few weeks ago, they are seeing a new customer trade down a little bit. But again, if we're talking about a stock market that needs to be re-rated and there's a handful of stocks, this is a $200 billion market cap company that does a quarter of a trillion dollars in sales a year, trading at 33 times this year, 30 times next it's too expensive what kind of consumer is the costco consumer is it a it's a wide one it's i mean right it's it's a big spectrum of from you know people who just really want to save money they want to buy in bulk they want to do whatever they can gas in particular right, right to people who think it's really fun yeah BK, is this a no touch for you? I feel, I feel I'm channeling BK, and I feel like it's gonna, you're going to say no touch. I wouldn't touch with a ten foot pole, but I do like the samples in the aisles. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's. Exactly, I mean, you know, now I don't have to say anything. You did my job for me. Thank you so much. I love the samples in the aisles, and I'm a member. I'm also a member of Sam's Club too. Um, yeah, you know what? I, normally, actually, in this environment, I would say, hey, maybe this is a place to hide. But yeah, you've got the multiple, and my biggest concern, the risk to this, is not even margins, is that we haven't seen any demand destruction yet, which is what everybody's trying to look for. We haven't seen it out of Ford when we talked about it earlier this week. There's no demand destruction. This was a good quarter. They had earnings and sales year over year up, even when your inflation adjusted. So we have, my concern is at 30 times, and you go into a recession where demand starts to decline, this stock actually could get hit pretty hard. All right. Up next, shares of Cano Health surging on the back of some potential big deal news. An exclusive interview with the CEO is up next. Plus, Diamond in the Rough, the J.P. Morgan CEO defending fossil fuel investments before Congress. But the move brought some representative rage. The details when Fast Money returns. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link 
your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com, that's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of healthcare provider Cano Health surging more than 30% and reports Humana and CVS are eyeing the company. Joining us from the Latitude Conference in San Diego, Contessa Brewer is with the CEO of Cano Health. NBC, by the way, is the official media partner for this event. Contessa. Melissa, thank you very much. So you saw Cano Health shares close up 32% today on the news that Humana is making or could make a bid for the company. All right, Marlo Hernandez joins me now, the CEO. Uh, talk to me a little bit about where you stand with Humana and where things are going. Well, Humana is a great partner of ours. We've been working for many years, uh, and uh, I'm not going to comment on the rumors. Uh, but uh, you know, we're uh, you know really excited about our momentum, about the uh, value we're bringing to patients, and and committed uh, to that long-term value creation. Uh, you now have nine states where yep. you're operating primary care centers, health care centers, That's right. uh, and Puerto Rico. Talk a little bit about your model and why this is something that might be a good fit for a company like Humana. Well, there's so much interest because value-based care is the present and the future. It's also very scarce. You know, when you are meeting patients uh, where they want to be met, when providers win, when payers win, when you can get measurably better care at a lower cost, you need technology, you need infrastructure, uh, you, you need uh, the, the, the necessary management uh, and, and processes. And, you know, that gets developed throughout the years. So you see a lot of these companies that are jumping in, you know, from retail, you got companies coming in from the payer space, from other healthcare, because uh, the growth and the demand is in the space and the sector. We've seen a lot of other consolidation mergers and acquisitions here. Uh, Amazon going to buy the right. parent of One Medical for $3.9 billion. That was announced this summer. CVS Health to buy Signify for $8 billion. That's a big play for home health care. Right. Is Humana the only company right now that is circling around you and, and looking at Cano Health as a potential great acquisition? Well, there's lots of companies that are in the, in the space, for sure. Um, and, and the reason is what I just mentioned. I mean, you get these conversions between retail, consumerism. You also have got, again, you know, where patients are being met, and that's at the primary care base. We don't have enough of it. And at Cano Health, I got to tell you, and you know, there's uh, not too many others that are just in the space, period, but we're the only ones who have ever shown a mortality reduction among our patients, the only ones who ever show a with specific mortality. You reported on it. We talked about it yeah. last year. We're also the only one that actually have bent the cost of care and reduced the cost of care over time. And that's what happens when you've got a model that invests in primary care and prevention. But again, there's there's lots to work out So you're out saving there. money on the acute care, you're saying. You, say, you, you invest in primary care and you're invest, uh, saving on the acute care. That's right. And, and it's not rocket science. I, I, I got to ask you, because you went public in 2020, Barry Stern licked head put some of his own money behind this, and he happens right. to be on your board along with Saul Trujillo, yep. who um, is the big proponent and the leader of Latitude Conference, where we are now. What role have your activist investors played in pushing you to consider a sale? I mean, you've got our quick asset management and third point as 
fairly large shareholders. Yeah, uh, well, uh, you know, they have been very uh, specific in uh, their letters. We have active uh, engagement, um, and uh, they've they've praised the the performance. Uh, you know, where we stand in terms of, of the industry and the long term, you know, tailwinds. Um, you know, our our board. Um, but this know, this is your baby, Kano Health. Do you want to sell it? It is. Listen, we're a public company. <laughs> when we stepped into the public realm, you know, we knew that uh, we're on sale every day by definition as a public company ah, and it's about that it's about that long-term value creation yeah. we're committed to that mission and the vision of the company Marlo Hernandez thank you so much for coming on to CNBC we appreciate it we'll be looking for the news to break here Melissa all right thank you very much Contessa Brewer with the CEO of Kano Health um, Karen you're in CVS so I'm just wondering mm-hmm. what you think of a potential de- deal here well, at some, I, I don't know if the FTC is going to start looking at, I imagine they're looking at Amazon. I would imagine they would look at CVS. But clearly, the landscape is changing mm-hmm. rapidly, and there's a land grab. And, um, you know, he was trying to dodge the question, but I think without really wanting to dodge the question. I, I read, they're for sale. It's going to be a heated battle for, you know, multiple parties. Right. Um, sounds like Humana maybe has the inside track because of their relationship. Um, and maybe they'll keep him on if he's, you know... If, when you, don't, when you have that shareholder base and they're not saying a thing at the moment, I feel like they're, they're comfortable with what's happening. Right, right. You, you know, it's interesting. Um, the CEO, he just mentioned, like, technology is part of this component. And when you think about a company like CVS, I mean, they're going to have to acquire to do some of this. I just had a long conversation with a guy named Adrian Aoun, who is the CEO founder of a company called Ford. X, Sidewalk Labs, Alphabet, Google, right? Like, AI guy. They're using AI to kind of put software, okay, together with, like, a physical presence, like, like you know, with right. doctors and stuff like that. All that stuff is coming. And I think that's going to be, like, a next wave of innovation. That's in the private markets. Big Mark Benioff as an investor in a company like that. So to me, I just think there's a lot of really interesting stuff that's going on in health tech. And it'll be interesting to see if some of these big, large public companies are going to make a big move to kind of really, I don't know, come into the, like, the modern age and use some of this tech that is working in other industries. You're making this point earlier too, Karen, that this is a company that went public via SPAC during the heyday, right. the height of the SPAC boom. And yes. here we are, even with this huge pop, it is trading below that $10 Mark, BK, and you've got to wonder about all the other SPACs that have gone public in the, at the height of the SPAC boom that are trading below that SPAC <laughs> price, and maybe this is the fate of a lot of them as well. Well, it's extraordinary, right, that you have, I mean, it sounds to me from this interview that there are multiple parties that are interested in this company, and yet you still can't get up to the level that it went public at. That, that sells a lot about what that SPAC bubble was like. And so I think, you know, maybe this is the one that actually makes it out. But as we know, sadly, most of them have not. Yeah, the rest of them would kill to be where, where Keanu is right now. Exactly. Eight. Wow. <laughs> Eight and change. Eight and change. And, and it could go higher. Yes. Uh, by the way, in the after hours, yeah. it's up 6.7% at this point. A lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Congress concern. Jamie Dimon feeling the heat on Capitol Hill as fossil fuel funding comes into focus. Why one lawmaker was calling for an account exodus. Plus, Lily Loving. Shares of Eli Lilly getting a boost as an analyst gives it a big thumbs up. So is this pharma stock the right medicine for your portfolio? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. The CEOs of America's biggest banks finished up their second day of testimony on Capitol Hill. One of the more compelling exchanges happened yesterday between Congresswoman Rashid Tlaib of Michigan and J.P. Morgan Chairman and CEO Jamie Dimon. Representative Tlaib wanted to know if, in an effort to combat climate change, these CEOs would commit to stop lending money to oil and gas companies. Does your bank have a policy against funding new oil and gas products, Mr. Dimon? Absolutely not. And that would be the road to hell for America. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Sir, you know what? Everybody that got relief from student loans has a bank account with your bank should probably take out their account and close their account. The fact that you're not even there to help relieve many of the folks that are in debt, extreme debt because of student loan debt and you're out there criticizing it. So is this whole ESG discussion gone too far? Here to weigh in is Tariq Fancy, the former BlackRock CIO of Sustainable Investing and founder of Rumi. Tariq, great to have you with us and great to get your take on this. Um, ESG started out with many, many good intentions. The conversation has gone very far at this point to the point where we have this congresswoman challenging Jamie Dimon saying you should stop funding oil and gas investments. What's your take on, on where we are right now with ESG? Well, I'd say I don't I don't know that what she was saying I would constitute as being ESG. I think the congresswoman means well in the sense that she's trying to address climate change. Unfortunately, there's no reason to believe that, you know, closing your account at J.P. Morgan is going to lower emissions. Right. First of all, they'll need to take enough pain from a marketing and PR perspective that it's greater than the, the profit on that lending book. And then that takes a long time. And number two, even if they did get to that point, they'll sell that business to someone else. There's a lot of other banks out there. The shadow banking sector is over 100 trillion. And so, you know, we're just moving stuff around, but I don't think it really changes the emissions profile. How do you think what has gone on with uh, energy prices and, and energy as an investment, finally a winning investment here in ESG investing? I mean, do you think that that challenges this movement in any way? On some level, yes, but I mean, the challenge about ESG as practiced so far is it's generally marketing, right? It's marketing, is non-binding marketing promises. It's a bunch of products that kind of rearrange things that already exist, like publicly traded shares, because you can basically segment the market and charge higher for a commoditized, you know, public markets product to, to green people. And in fact, I mean, it's, it's such successful marketing we're seeing right now doing their own version, right? Anti-ESG funds. It almost kind of reminds me of Starbucks and Black Rifle Coffee, if you've seen that new the new coffee brand with a like a machine gun in their logo, right? It's it's you know issues are getting polarized, and for commoditized products, people will try to buy the one that aligns with their values, and that seems to be what's going on with ESG and anti-ESG. But it's not clear that that changes the underlying system. It's really just status quo, you know, presented differently. Mr. Fancy, which I wanted to say because it's such a good good name. Do you think that that the pendulum seems to me is just starting to swing of pushback against ESG? Um, what we think of as ESG investing, do you think we're going to see the pendulum continue to swing further? I think so. I mean, it's it's hard to escape the fact that it's now entered the sort of U.S. political discourse, which tends to look like, you know, WWF wrestling from the 90s. It's not clear that, you know, 
in that even in that discussion, it's not clear that anyone's really talking about what happens in banking, right? I mean, the congresswoman probably doesn't understand the market system well enough to know that if J.P. Morgan doesn't do it, someone else probably will, right? That's that's exactly how the market system is designed to operate. But I also think that J.P. Morgan and the leaders in the financial services industry have done us a disservice by not saying that, by not saying that, listen, if you know, if you stop us doing it, someone else will do it. So really, you need a systemic solution, and that's going to require uh, you know, government to change incentives so that the whole system moves in a direction. I think ESG is unfortunately masquerading as businesses' answer to these issues. And, you know, it just destroys public faith because every year ESG assets and sustainable babel increases and it somehow increases alongside carbon emissions and inequality. Because, again, you know, the idea of ESG was that it was supposed to be good for the investing returns, good for the planet and good for asset managers. Uh, spoiler alert, only one of those has happened so far and it's not the first two. Tarek, it's great to get your take on this. Hope to have you back. Tarek, fancy a roomie. <laughs> uh, not to mention, not, not funding fossil fuels, BK, is terrible when it comes to the energy security of the United States. I mean, there's, if, some, if we've learned one thing out of Russia's invasion into Ukraine and what's going on in Europe, that is you need a portfolio of energy resources. Precisely. And I would love it if somebody in the government, Congress or whatever, from both sides would have a rational discussion and just say, hey, we want to get away from fossil fuels, whether it's climate change or you like the idea of smelling corn chips coming out your tailpipe. I don't care. (laughs) But here's the path to it. Let's just not cut off our oil supply at first and put itself at risk. Let's have that path and whatever it is, have a clear path and let's fund that. But instead, we get this infighting and we end up here today. I think it is very important um, to underscore what Tarek said, and that is it is only good for one party involved in ESG, and that is the asset managers, having been, uh, you know, the CIO of sustainable investing at BlackRock. Um, that's really telling, and, and that really shows you that you should understand what you're buying and what you're buying into. Yeah, and I think that's a big lesson. I mean, there, there is a silver lining of this whole discussion, and I think you, the way you framed it, Mel, is pretty good. It's kind of gone off the rails on both sides. Like, on one side, we have a group of people who don't believe in climate change. On the other side, we have, you know, people demonizing a bank that's trying to do a whole heck of a lot of things, one of the largest banks in the world, and they don't really kind of want to be in the middle of a political argument here. And so when you think about investors, and I think this is what the congressperson was trying to get at here, is, like, if you care about those sorts of issues, you know what I mean? Then speak with your wallet in a way. And that is, I think, the mantra, the ethos of this ESG movement. It just seems to be that it's gone off the rails. And your point about this, I think it's become really apparent, especially if you live in Europe. But energy as a, a point of national security, that is something that probably it doesn't trump climate issues, but it does kind of should insist or we should be really focused on finding some stuff like BK just said, where we can really have intelligent conversations and figure it out. So. Coming up, Lily getting some love today. We'll break down why this could be the right prescription for your portfolio. The details next, plus payment pain. Shares of Block getting rocked after a longtime believer in the name changes his tune and the drop as options traders piling in. More on that when Fast Money returns. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. And look who is here on set. Wow. At the na- Bono and Eisen yes. has nice. made it, ladies and gentlemen. Nice to see you. Thank uh, you. You win traffic. It's the best two weeks of the year for New York City. <laughs> um, so anyway, we'll get on with it, Bono. But I'm glad that you made it here safely. Thank you very much. Check out shares of Eli Lilly getting a healthy boost higher today. UBS upgrading the stock to a buy, saying the weight loss drug could be the biggest drug ever. The best-selling drug in history, it said in the note. It's our call of the day. One of our traders says this could be the whole Holy grail for weight loss. Karen, you loved everything about this call. Yes, I did. I loved everything about this call. I am long Eli Lilly. Uh, I'm also long Novo Nordisk, which makes a uh, competitive product that is on the market. Uh, if you're, I mean, this is not um, a hidden secret, right? Terzepatitis is supposed to be a gigantic drug, either as a diabetes drug and as a weight loss drug under a different name. Same thing, basically. So what the, the basis of the piece was, this will drive Lilly and uh, that the revenue guidance should be much higher than where it is right now. $25 billion is what they were thinking. And so if it, they put a big multiple on it, though. I will say they do put a big multiple on it to get to that pretty high number. I don't know if it'll get there, but I think this is the kind of thing where you buy the rumor mm-hmm. and we're not going to see the drug widespread until next year. But I mean, it's an amazing product when you think about about 21% average body weight loss. That is enormous with very few side effects and very positive diabetes um, reversals. Right. That's staggering. Plus, they have some other drugs, uh, Alzheimer's. I'm not, I, I don't really count that um, in the story, but this drug is the holy grail. And so I think buying it in front of the release and maybe selling it on the release. But we'll see that early next year. Yeah, the analyst also makes the point that the Alzheimer's drug, while while it could be promising, is not at all within the model. And it would be sort of like a kicker down the road if it actually um, was effective. Bono, what do you think of Lilly? Yeah, I mean, there's really no, uh, you know, argument in terms of the valuation. It is expensive. But really, when you start to drill down into the numbers, if you look at 25 billion, you look at 20% net margins, you look at shares outstandings, they get to about $5 a share. And that's before kind of slapping the multiple on there. And if you look at the penetration that they would need in order to achieve these numbers, they're predicating their, their guidance on about like a 1% to 5% penetration in terms of obesity cases. So, you know, while it is aggressive from a valuation standpoint, the underlying assumptions going in are relatively conservative. And I do think that makes for a compelling case. All right, coming up, getting blocked. Shares of the payment company sinking as analysts lose interest in the move as option traders piling in. We've got the details next. And throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, we are celebrating our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here's the CEO of Project Barrett. As a Latina, it's very important to me to be proud of my heritage and be proud of who I am. We are uniquely strong and we need to be proud of that and showcase our strengths in the workplace and at home. From my own upbringing, having to work in my father's tortilleria and learning how to understand about logistics and warehouse and production, I certainly have taken that and apply a lot of those lessons learned throughout my own career. Welcome back to Fast Money. Talk about a square peg in a round hole. Shares of payment company Block, formerly known as Square, dropping hard today after an analyst downgrade. Mizuho's Dandola of citing user fatigue and plateauing inflows. And the move is options traders making some moves in the name. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. 
Yep, so we saw about 1.8 times the average daily put volume in block today. That was the result of a really large put spread. The November 57 and a half 50 put spread traded 7,000 times. Now the trader bought those 57 and a halfs only on Monday and realized a $1.7 million profit. And they are taking that and some more to bet that the stock could be down as much as 19% by November expiration. All right. Thanks, Mike. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, pigs getting proof. Ratings coming in hot for Amazon's first NFL game. So are the sports streaming wars about to kick off? The play-by-play is next when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Amazon airing its second Thursday night football game tonight between Pittsburgh Steelers and Cleveland Browns. Today, we learned that week one drew a big time audience. Amazon Prime averaging 13 million viewers compared to 8.4 million from last year. Also, the audience was six years younger. Not everyone on this desk was sold that people would show up. So my parents put their credit card in Amazon probably like uh, four years ago, okay? And so my dad really likes football, so he's going to want to watch this Thursday night game. Do you think he has any idea how to watch his uh, streaming Prime membership? Sort of thing? I mean, like this, is, this has the potential to be a disaster. From TV to streaming to betting, seems like sports can't. What do we call that, fast fire? Kind of. It wasn't a call on the stock. I, no, again, I, 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 it could be a disaster. I mean, well, no, but I, I just think from from the NFL t- viewing experience, here's the good news: six years younger. That means that that is an audience that likes to watch things on their phone and this. And I don't know about you guys. I love watching NFL football on an 85-inch screen and that you sort could of thing. You do that so, in stream too. Well, you can, but I'm just saying, there's a large part of this country who probably did not figure out how to do that. And if you look at the numbers versus Monday night games and Sunday games, it probably wasn't that impressive either. I feel like Bonowin's the kind of guy who can stream on a big screen TV. I can't drive, but I can stream. Uh, (laughs) That's the the good news. Um, You know, the other thing is, if you kind of look at their uh, prime membership editions on the back of this, that's really what the crux of this Mm. is. And whether or not you can watch it or not, I don't really think they care. If you're signing up for the service, paying for the service, ultimately, that's where the dollars make sense. I mean, content is king, right, BK? Content sports, that's one reason to actually watch anything, whether it be on streaming or, or linear TV. At least to watch anything live these days, right? That's one of the things that most people, the only thing that people watch live. But also remember, I mean, to Bonowin's point, this is an advertising platform, right? So all they want to do is get more users so they can advertise to you. So it doesn't really matter if you you watch the game or not. And I'm sorry, Dan, that your parents had problems, but they are still going to get ads on what to buy on Amazon. (laughs) Oh, the demise of linear TV. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I remember when that was just, you know, it was either CBS Sports and then for a while it was Fox. And now it's, you know, and it's hard to find things that are streaming. Right. As you said, right, where it's streaming. So you're in dance camp in terms of it's hard to find things. And so therefore it's the audiences are going to be fragmented and maybe they won't actually show up in big numbers. Uh, I guess that, yes, they will be fragmented. But um, I, I just think the linear TV lock that that I mean, that was a money machine sports that they're not going to have as much. Yeah, well, it's going to be harder to get. Yes. Now. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the Final Trade. Let's go around the horn. BK, Brian Kelly. Uh, For me, rates going higher. You buy TBT. Bono and Eisen. I'd say long volatility. If 20 to 30 was the range when you thought a soft landing was a possibility, I think you might look at increasing that range. By the way, it took you how long to get here? Two hours. Two hours. Wow. 
Karen, <laughs> yeah. Um, from that interview with Contessa, I think they're for sale. Cano Health. And when you got a lot of giant companies going after a relatively small company, I think you can get some good upside from here. It's probably like three miles, right? Or something? The distance? I mean, it's crazy. Do you ever just want to give up and walk? 3.3. 3.3. <laughs> 3. 3. Dan. What's his call time? It's, it's, isn't it 4.45 or something It was like 40 that? minutes I, I earlier know. than okay. you um, You know what? I'm kind of on the other side of BK. I, last night when I was GOVT, and I'm probably a seller of the UUP here, too. That's a dollar, U.S. dollar index ETF. All right. Thanks for watching Fast. Mad Money starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.